0: The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson.
1: Today is the 14th of August 2018 and um, we're going to continue this evening with um, a talk in a series that i started some months ago um, on our long ancestral line Um, this was a a, we had a request when we did some brainstorming at the beginning of the year people wanted to have more background on the different chants we do and um, the long ancestral line is one of the two um, chants of names of past masters that we do um, it goes, it goes back a long way, um, back at least to to, um, to China. Buddhism was, came from China. Um, the other one we do the pool is called the Pool of Radiance, and it's much much newer, and something that we put together based on one that was done in Sweden. And it includes a lot of the women masters who were ignored and didn't appear in the appear in the histories until some female scholars started to dig up their stories and plus more familiar names uh, from our Koan curriculum that aren't in our regular ancestral line. And I've given quite a few talks on the uh, some of the women. There's a lot there but that we've got to get through, but um, had quite a few talks about the women in that lineage um, chart, the pool of radiance. Uh, but the ancestral line, just for, to introduce it, for those of you who weren't here for any of the other talks, um, is a line. It's our particular lineage, our family tree, so to speak. And it goes all the way from what are known as the primordial Buddhas. And these are kind of mythical Buddha figures there that are there to emphasize that the Buddha didn't just kind of invent the Dharma. It was more like he he rediscovered it or or uncovered it. Um, And then it goes from from those right through Shakyamuni, uh, through the Indian um, Ancestors, the, the the Chinese ones, the Japanese ones, and right up to our founder, the founder of our school, Roshi Philip Zensetsu Kaplow, who's the who's the last name chanted in that in their lineage. Um, it's it's um, and it's important and its power is the fact that it expresses this this um, this spiritual lineage of which we are a part. Um, it's. Uh, we know when we look deeply into the into the names and the dates that um, it's something that's been constructed of, out of of uh, material that the the, uh, the the people who put the chart uh, together had access to and there are gaps in and oddities in it for instance between Ananda who's at number three who we looked at a while ago and upa Gupta who's one of the protagonists of the story that we're looking at today, uh, there's 200 years there, there's a gap of 200 years, so it's hard to, to un- understand how it could be a, um, a mind-to-mind transmission between these masters unless they were uh, grew, lived to be very, very old and then at other places in it there's bunching up of um, many, many masters who lived around about the same time so, one way of understanding what's happening in this it's like um, whoever constructed or began the, um, this this lineage looked for the names of important masters and then um, w- worked them into this lineage. And so, um, the Indian names that we'll be visiting over the over some weeks reflect different sort of highlights of. Of, of the development of early Buddhism. And with a little bit of sort of filling in of details one can get quite a coherent overview actually of, of sort of the high points, the important things that happened in India and uh, when we get to the end of these Indian names maybe we'll go back and have a look at that and get a bit more of an overview. But it is it is. Um, Kind of fictional, but as I've said before, it's a fiction that's pointing to something important, a truth that's important. Um, we've been drawing on the uh, for our stories um, about these masters from a book called the Denko Roku, which is by Master Keizan. He's a Japanese master, um, and he was born in 1264, so that's just Eleven years after the death of Master Dogen, who is the founder of the Soto tradition in Japan, so he he's three generations after Master Dogen, and and in each um, story we we there's a case um, and a verse that are looked at when you when you take these up these koans up in practice, and then there's also a commentary by Master Kazan, which you don't do formally but we'll be drawing on for um, some material as we go through the story so today we're taking up case number six which is um, uh, Dritaka and what Kazana has done is he's um, invented a little dharma dialogue um, to go with with each of these um, uh, transmission stories of passing the Dharma in this case from Upagupta to Dritaka in our lineage. We um, let me just first of all read the case in the verse, and then we'll look a little bit about the two two characters here. So here's the case, the story. Dritaka said, "One who leaves home and becomes a monk has no personal self." and no personal possessions, and because the original mind neither arises nor ceases, this is the eternal way. The Buddhas too are eternal. The mind has no form and its essence is the same. Upagupta said, you must realize this fully through your own enlightenment. At this, Dhritaka had a deep realization. And then Kazan's verse, you must realize by gaining the marrow that your enlightenment is clear. Lumbian still has a secret he cannot transmit and um, there's a footnote about this Lumbian it's a story from the Taoist sage Chuangzi that there was a wheel maker whose name was Lumbian and he, he couldn't transmit every secret of his wheel making art even to his own son and so it's said that he um, kept on making wheels himself until he was in his old age. In other words, in other words, he realised that that much of his skill of wheel making was was beyond the power of words to communicate. And this will we'll come back to this later. So we have these two characters. We have Upagupta, who we met before in the last talk we gave on this, who's now the teacher in the um, transmitting to Dhritaka. Um, There's not much material on um, either of these, but we do have a little bit on Upagupta. He was around in the third century before the Common Era and um, was the teacher of King Ashoka now King Ashoka if you know a little bit of Indian history is a very important figure um, actually the Indian flag has has his, his symbol on it and he was a great he was a great um, ruler who was very involved in the in the um, dissemination of Buddhism Uh, it said said that Upagupta was a teacher of King Ashoka and um, he passed on his own zeal for the Dharma to Ashoka and Ashoka then uh, spread Buddhism Ashoka had been a um, had conquered many parts of his empire and done a lot of killing. And then he repented of this and became a Buddhist, and uh, uh, went on to to promulgate different kinds of laws which were uh, very advanced for their time, um, hospitals, uh, nonviolence, um, uh, offering medical care to animals, uh, many many things that were quite um, you could say uh, enlightened forms of, of rule at, at that at that time. And um, under Ashoka, uh, Buddhism sp- uh, spread um, throughout Mo- uh, India, what is now India, also Pakistan, now Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal. Um, s- so uh, this upagupta was at this um, key point and it's it's true that often um, the spread of religion the 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 advancement of it um, geographically has to do with um, uh, influencing rulers so uh, not not all that much about upagupta and and uh even less about Dritaka. Um, there's a little bit in that, that um, we get in in Kezan's commentary here. Um, let's see, uh, Kazan says that he, he was from the kingdom of Magada, which was. Um, an important kingdom also at the time the Buddha earlier. And then there's a story of of a dream that his father had um, when he was when his son Dritaka was born. When he was born his father dreamed that a golden sun appeared from the house and brilliantly illuminated heaven and earth. In front was a large mountain decorated with seven jewels on top of the mountain there was a spring which gushed forth flowing copiously in the four directions. When the master first, this is Dhritaka, first visited Upagupta, he recounted this. Upagupta told him the following, the large mountain is myself and the gushing spring is you arousing prajna insight, prajna is like transcendent wisdom arousing prajna insight and penetrating the inexhaustibility of the dharma. The sun appearing from the house is your present entering the way. The illumination of heaven and earth is the presence of your prajna insight. Now just uh, just to say something about dreams here, that um, dreams can... um, when there's a, when there's a great there's a great master about to be born then um, it's as if archetypal forces um, arise from the deep deep recesses of the mind uh, we have the example of of the, of the Buddha's mother who dreamt of being um, uh, touched by the six tusked elephant uh, uh, and after that she became pregnant and Uh, This dream was later interpreted by wise men. Um, And so this dream that um, uh, Dreektaka's father had is kind of pointing to um, how exceptional his son was to be. And we have this um, beautiful image of um, the spring on top of the mountain gushing forth in the four directions. The, the name, Dritaka's original name, was Gandahastan, which means fragrant elephant. <laughs> it's quite a, quite a uh, lovely image. But then he was given a new name, because of this dream, he was given a new name, which was Dhrithaka, Um intimate with the limit of reality. So when um, Dhritaka heard what Upagupta had said about what the dream meant, he then um, offered a verse. He said, From the lofty mountain of seven jewels, a stream of prajna insight gushes always. It transmits the taste of true dharma and brings deliverance to those who respond stream of Prajna insight gushes always. If you've um, if you've uh, ever sat and watched a a spring of clear water. It's really quite um, an extraordinary thing to see clear, um, clean sparkling water coming up out of the ground and just coming and coming and coming. Out um, at uh, Chapin Mill where where the centre I trained at has a, has a retreat centre. There's a spring like this. And it's, it um, never goes dry. It just keeps bringing forth this pure, clear water. And so it's a beautiful image for um, the, the teachings that they're not something we have to manufacture, but um, are pouring forth in, uh, moment by moment, endlessly, inexhaustibly. So Upagupta replies with a verse. Talking about gushing forth. <laughs> I hope you can all hear me over the rain. Uh, please just wave if, if I need to go louder. So Upagupta replied with with a verse. I transmit my Dharma to you and you will manifest great prajna insight a golden sun appears from a house and brilliantly illuminates heaven and earth so then on hearing this from uh... upagupta uh... made his bows um, three bows and Asked him if he could then make his home departure. So um, home departure is is a way of talking about becoming a monk. Uh, monks are sometimes referred to as as home leavers, and it, it refers both to to actually physically leaving one's home because monks would would would. Uh, and nuns would um, not participate in, in the lives of their families and all the the duties that went with that but they would go and join communities and um, originally in ancient India uh, the time of the Buddha they wouldn't actually have any kind of permanent home. Later on monasteries grew up but at the, the very early stages they wandered and they didn't didn't have Um, any shelter which was possible in India so he says he's really asking if he can if he if um, Upagupta will um, ordain him and at this point um, Upagupta asks him a question he says Um, is your intention to make your home departure a home departure of mind or body? and uh, for people who were here at the previous talk in the series uh, may remember that um, he was asked a very similar question by his teacher, Shanavasa, who asked him um, after he had been ordained, has your body left home or has your mind? Has your body left home or has your mind? Now what's he asking here? in uh, Master Kazan's commentary on the on the earlier story, the one between Upagupta and Shanavasa, he says that talking about leaving the home the body leaving the home and the mind leaving the home are two distinct forms of home leaving um, when the body leaves home that means um, literally leaving home, becoming a monk or a nun renouncing comforts in family life, taking up um, uh, celibacy, shaving the head, wearing robes and all of that. And he says, and practicing 24-7 basically. Practicing all the time. And then he contrasts this with the mind leaving home. And here what he describes is is actually um, the life of a of a seasoned, a mature lay person, lay practitioner, person who doesn't wear robes or shave his or her head or wear special clothes, lives at home, lives in a house, has many world, worldly cares uh, to take care of, but and he uses this image that they're like lotuses who are not muddied by circumstances, people who can live in a busy city but be tranquil and pure, people who don't see their lives as distractions to their awakening but as the stuff of awakening. So they're not attached to enlightenment and nor are they attached to worldly things. He says these are people who've left the house In spirit, you could say they've taken up uh, an interior form of uh, renunciation. So, um, Shanavasa's question, sorry, Upagupta's question, uh, very similar to his teacher, Shanavasa's. Has your body left home or has your mind? Is your intention to make your home departure a home departure of mind or of body? And we should be always be uh, beware when we get uh, either or questions from Zen masters. Because they're very, they're very often um, setting up a trap for the student. Because can can body and mind be separated? Can you can when you when you're leaving in the literal sense of becoming a monk, um, is the mind not involved in that? And when you're a lay person living a life in the world, a life of non-attachment, then. Is somehow your body not involved in that? What Andritaka says in answer to Upagupta's question is my request for home departure is not for the sake of mind or body. So he he avoids falling into dualistic thinking about mind and body here. But Upagupta presses further, he says if not for mind or body, then who leaves home? Well, it's a good question. If, you, if, it's, if it's not your body and it's not your mind, what's left that's leaving home? And then what he replies to, what Dhritaka replies to that is, is what we have for, in our koan here, the words that we have at the, the beginning of, our, of the case. So he says... Um, one who leaves home and becomes a monk has no personal self and no personal possessions. And because the original mind neither arises nor ceases, this is the eternal way. The Buddhas too are eternal. The mind has no form and its essence is the same. So let's just have a, a bit of a look at what he's saying here. He says, the one who leaves home and becomes a monk has no personal self Um, probably I'm not sure that I like the translation that we have in our version of this Um, in the footnote to another version um, um, Francis Cook's version in which we have the commentaries by Kazan. Cook says this about, about um, this no personal self, which he trans- translates as the no-self self. He says, the Japanese has mugaga, literally, no-self self, where one would expect the commoner muga, no-self. All texts have mugaga, which I assume is intentional. I have accordingly translated it as self which is no-self, but it could be just no-self. The term is directly followed by Mugaga-sho, which is clearly translatable as without what belongs to a self, or simply without mine. It is obvious that Kazan is using the very common expression in Buddhist literature that says there is no me, or mine, or no self, or what belongs to a self." So that he's referring here to an advanced state, in a pretty exalted state in which there's no I, or me, or mine. Um, another translation, a free translation by um, uh, a modern Zen teacher called Lex Hickson, who passed away some time after writing this, um, captures, captures the spirit of it. Well, he says, um, he translates these first lines as, One who lo- leaves home may gradually become me and my but original mind never ceases to be just itself. So he's giving us a little more space in here by saying, may gradually become. We don't necessarily um, uh, come to ordination or to practice having, having completely become me-less and myless, No I, me or mine. Um, but that's the process that we are in, in practice. He adds, but original mind never ceases to be just itself. Original mind doesn't have to um, develop itself. It just is. If, if really, truly we had developed this um, sense of no I, me or mine, then um, we would be able to live with no, no personal possessions and no, no clinging to a sense of a personal self. Um, that, would be, that would be possible for us because we would see that that the true mind never leaves us it never goes anywhere never comes from anywhere about oh, good seven or eight years ago i had an acupuncturist and um, something got us on to talking about um, spiritual masters and um, he felt that the most spiritually impressive person that he had ever met was a homeless man who lived at a, a railway, a large city railway station, I think it was in Indonesia, that he passed through regularly when he was living in Asia, this acupuncturist, and so he had to see this guy. And um, he, he survived b- um, by eating the scraps of food that the passengers in the, in the trains th- threw out the window. but but really how many of us are are ready and able to live like that truly with equanimity um, dropping i me and mine which is another way of talking about uh, renouncing our, our our attachment to self is it's, it's, ne- it's absolutely necessary on the spiritual path but Um, for all of us um, here it's a it's a process we're in Uh, not a we're not uh, at at any anywhere near the completion of that and so it's careful we have to be careful not to be get um, too idealistic and try to hold ourselves to an ideal image that we might have of what it's like to be um, have no self and be a Zen person. We have to, we have to um, recognize what our present needs are, um, and what we what we what we really need to meet to to meet those needs and live a live a healthy kind of life. Well, at the same time, looking carefully at what we could do without, yes. But we we have needs, and um, working to uh, meet those needs is makes sense. Um, some people probably familiar with the the Lojong teachings in in uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, this is a it's a kind of compendium of, of pithy teaching phrases, which um, one can take up throughout one's day. And um, one of them is entitled, um, um, Acquire the Three Principal Causes. and this is i am reading a little bit from um, Alan Wallace's book on these um, on these um, teachings called Buddhism with an Attitude the three principal causes of a flourishing spiritual practice are one receiving guidance from a qualified spiritual mentor two devoting yourself to all stages of practice in accordance with the guidance you have received and three assembling the outer and inner conditions necessary for effective pra- practice. Um, and this third one is the one that is, is of interest to us here. Um, assembling the both the inner and outer conditions are necessary for practice. So three crucial inner conditions mentioned are faith, intelligence and zeal. We need these three to practice effectively. But um, equally crucial outer conditions are having adequate food and clothing, and the company of good spiritual friends. So, um, having adequate food and clothing and shelter, we could say, and a sangha, good spiritual friends, means a sangha to to practice with. So and it's seen as being um, a really good karma to have um, the means to to uh, practice adequate food and clothing and shelter, and we can we can understand why this might have been emphasised more in in Tibet. Um, with its extremely rugged um, environment uh, where, where um, harsh winters, where having, having adequate shelter and food and warm clothing would be, would be essential. Though we know that um, the great, great masters of Tibet endured a lot of hardship living in, in caves Um, eating very little but the bare minimum is needed. We could equally say that in um, a very expensive, uh, crowded city the, the practicalities of life have to be addressed. Life and livelihood. And this is something we, we the, the centre has, has struggled with in in uh, finding a way to support uh, our staff um, in a sustainable way for for that staff member and for the centre. We can, we can also in, interpret what Dritaka says um, in, a, in a more metaphorical way when he says has no personal self and no personal possessions. Um, we can understand no personal self as being, not having any ideas about who and what we are. And not needing to to assert those ideas, um, not checking on how we um, compare with others what are our, our, um, measuring ourselves and our what we feel is our worth on the basis of how much money we have or power or status and so forth or or um spiritual attainments too but just letting go of all of that, letting go of that um, self and other mentality and we can understand no personal possessions um, as, as referring to all the opinions we have about the world. And others, we can, we can discover that it's possible to drop those opinions, or at least not to always obey the urge to assert them, uh, speak of them, so, so we can see that these as, as a kind of process that we're in. But also, on the other hand, um, although it's a, it's a process of, of wearing these things away, at the same time as, as from, from a uh, relative perspective, we can see it that way, from the absolute perspective, right now, I have no personal self. We have no personal selves because these are something that we make up when in fact, we are Mugaga or uh, a no self self, and equally we uh, as having no personal self we we own nothing even even if we are rich right now, in fact when we're really honest about it we can recognize that we own nothing we, we never know when circumstances are going to change and what we own will be taken away from us one way or another and we can wake up to this right, right now Drikaka says, because the original mind neither arises nor ceases, this is the eternal way. The Buddhas too are eternal. There's there's an intelligence which transcends all the forms it takes. And Upagupta, when um, Dhritaka says this, he replies, you must realize this fully through your own enlightenment. In his verse earlier on he, he says that he's he's has already transmitted the Dharma to Dritaka. Just on hearing of this of um, his poem he replies I've transmitted to you. But right here he's urging him to keep on deepening his understanding, not to just understand what he said superficially. It was a, it's a Basic teaching of Buddhism, the teaching of no self, not to just just be able to speak of it in this way, but uh, to make it real in his life. Hickson in his in his discussion of this. This story emphasizes that that when we realize the teaching, we realize it in our own way, in our own unique way that nobody else has ever realized it before. Of course, it's unique because we're u- unique, and yet at the same time, this no-self self is just our ordinary everyday mind it's it's not something uh, special in contrast to what other people experience it's our birthright it's it's uh, right there in in our sitting on a mat or um, turning on a light, or, or lying down to sleep, or waking up when the alarm clock goes off. It's um, ordinary, and yet it's urgently needed that we, we realise it for ourselves and um, pass it on to others. Point them in the, in the right direction, at least. At the end of, of um, Kazan's commentary, he says, Thoroughly see the Buddha's face and thoroughly experience awakening and your bright original mind. Just as a gourd is entwined with its own vines and a bright jewel is surrounded by a halo, one understands the existence of the inner hall of the Buddhas and patriarchs and for the first time acquires it." And then he follows this up with his verse. You must realize by gaining the marrow that your enlightenment is clear. Lunbian still has a secret which he cannot transmit. It's um, it's not enough to believe in alignment um, because we can't we can't, it's not can't be if it's just a belief it can't be something that's active in our lives. We have, to, we have to realize it, actualize it. Know, it, know it in our bones so that we can respond out of it, even when the going gets tough in different ways, when, when things change, when they don't go the way we want them to go. Let's finish with with a comment by by Hickson and his commentary here. Each sage is a gourd entwined with his own unique pattern of vines. The uniqueness of each mind is not effaced by realisation. By awakening we do not become impersonal principle, but the ever unique no-self self. Now we can enter the inner sanctuary of all Buddhas and wander through our own homeland. The essential energy of such awakening brings all 84,000 teachings alive and clear. But each illumined sage, like the Taoist wheelwright Lun Pien, unveils a unique subtlety that was never manifested before and will never be repeated again. Is it the mind or the body that leaves home? Who is it that leaves home? What is it that never arises or ceases? Upagupta admonishes us in this, this story. You must realize this fully through your own enlightenment. And not stop at one experience or two, but to keep on going deeper. Let's finish up now with with, um, some lines that many of you will have chanted many times. This is from another chant that we do called The Harmony of Relative and Absolute. If you do not see the way, you do not see it even as you walk on it. When you walk the way, it is not near, it is not far. If you are deluded, you are mountains and rivers away from it. From To those who wish to be enlightened, I respectfully say, Do not waste your time by night and day. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number
0: I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain, only. Without number, I vow to liberate, and the spine passions I vow to uproot, Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the. without number, I vow to liberate endless flying passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of To attain, the teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.